Okay. Uh, Sheriff, just for a mic check, just give me your first and your last name. Randy Strong. Randy Strong is the sheriff of Nottoway County, Missouri. In 2004, he was with the Maryville Police Department. We were ending our day. Uh, it was, I want to say it was almost time to, to leave or go home around 4 o'clock, if I recall. Um, I had walked some papers up the prosecutor's office up here by the courthouse, and uh, Sheriff Espy called me. Ben Espy was the longtime sheriff of Nottoway County. He died in 2021. I'd heard the call come out on the radio. And a warning, this episode discusses graphic violence and sexual abuse of children. And it was just bizarre enough, I thought, something, something's not right, I better stick around. Uh, the report was uh, the mother had come home, found her daughter who was pregnant uh, on the floor and it looked like her abdomen had exploded. It's probably one of the worst, worst things I'd seen done to a human, maybe. You could see um, the violence associated with it, uh, the brutality associated with it. The victim is Skidmore resident and expecting mother, Bobby Joe Stinnett. In his report, Strong noted cut marks going clear across her body. There were marks on Bobby Joe's face where she'd been struck, suspected ligature marks on the neck, and a gaping wound in the abdomen. But there was no sign of Bobby Joe's baby. She was eight months pregnant. I was assigned to help try to find the baby run down leads. All involved say then-Sheriff Espy viewed the missing fetus as a potentially live kidnapping. The chances of a baby surviving her mother's murder were extremely low, but without evidence of its remains, Espy operated under the assumption that it was alive. And if it was alive, it was at least one month premature. It might be in danger. Uh, we were all upset. Everybody on the team recognized the severity uh, of this case. Uh, not only have we got a murder, but now we have a kidnapped child. From WFIU Public Radio in Indiana, this is Rush to Kill. Problematic capital punishment cases are rarely plagued by just one issue. More often than not, death penalty experts say, they overlap and clash. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it's unconstitutional to execute a person with severe mental illness. The guilty party must understand the reason they're being punished. Of the 14 people the Trump administration attempted to kill in its final six months, at least two of them suffered from severe mental illness or cognitive deficiencies so severe that they didn't meet the criteria for execution. But the Justice Department pushed forward anyway, and its rush toward a January 2021 deadline as President Joe Biden was set to take office. So we were all devoted. We were in, in for the long haul. We were all angry. They ran into obstacles immediately. The sheriff's office requested an amber alert, but administrators of the system turned it down. And it was turned down because there was no picture of the baby, the baby was unseen. A key aspect of amber alerts is that they require actionable information. Recipients need to know what they're looking for. That's why whenever you get one on your phone, it'll include a license plate number or the make, model, and color of a car. Strong appealed to the district's congressman and asked him to intervene. And uh, was able to get get the ball rolling on that, so credit to him for that. The Amber Alert finally went out and the calls started coming in. Officers eventually installed extra phone lines and a dedicated room to handle the surge. We ran leads all night long uh, that, to no avail. 
Stinnett's mother, Becky Harper, told investigators that she spoke to her daughter on the phone only hours before arriving and finding the body. She said Stinnett had to end the call prematurely because someone was coming to look at puppies. According to Harper, one of the last things she told her mom was that the buyer was there. We did get some computer forensics back leaning us towards um, a woman that claimed she was going to go to Bobby Joe and look, look at some dogs to buy, some rat terriers. She identified herself as Darlene Fisher. And had that rather ominous email as Fisher for kids at Hotmail. And there was nobody by that name in that community. The Amber Alert also alerted media from Missouri and far beyond Nottoway County. All the satellite trucks were here, all the news media. Coverage was immense. And went inside and uh, one of the dispatchers came in to sheriff and told him of this lead uh, that we needed to go check out Lisa Montgomery in Melbourne, Kansas. Melbourne is hours from Skidmore, but it didn't seem totally random. They knew each other from the Rat Terrier community. They were all active on a website dedicated to them. And there was a lot of talk on that in, in this website. And uh, this woman suggested that we go talk to Lisa Montgomery, who claimed to have had the baby on the same day that ours was taken. And it th- put that link together. And I just turned to Sheriff Espy and I said, I want that lead. And he said, you've got it. Cheryl, could you just say, pronounce your, uh, and spell your first and last name, could you just spell, yeah. spell it for me? Uh, it's a C-H-E-R-Y-L, and the last name is Houston, H-U-S-T-O-N. I want to talk about uh, Becky. Houston is a native of Skidmore, the small town where she became best friends with Bobby Justinet's mother, Becky Harper, growing up. They're still close today. One of us showed up without the other one. It was always, where's your sidekick? They've remained friends ever since, including for the birth of Becky's daughter, Bobby Jo. Whenever Beck and I would go somewhere and take Bobby Jo with us, she'd always sit in the middle on my console of my car, and she always wanted to sit in the miggle. That's what she always said, I want to sit in the miggle. Uh, but then when Bobby Jo got to high school, she pretty much flourished. She worked on the yearbook, and I don't know if she played any sports, but she did roping and stuff like that. I've never known a mother and daughter as close as Becky and Bobby Joe. I, well, I was working at the Vision Center in Walmart, and as I was going home that night, the door greeter said, do you know who got shot in Skidmore? And I go, what? She goes, well, somebody just came in and said that a 23-year-old pregnant woman had been killed. So I got in my car, started driving home, going through my mind the whole entire way of all the people I could think of that fit that description, and the only one I could come up with was Bobby Joe. Of course, I didn't know where Becky was, so I went over uh, towards Becky's house, and her brother Steve was there in the alley, and he came walking towards me, and uh, he said, Becky's not here. I said, Steve, I know, and I was crying. I go, Steve, why? And he gave me a big hug, and he goes, I don't know why. Yes, and I went home that night and put a steel ball bat by my door, because we didn't know who'd done it, and my youngest daughter was pregnant, I called her up and I said, don't tell anybody you're pregnant. I was on vacation when it happened and I received a phone call uh, late that night asking me to be up there in the morning. Don Fritz worked 22 years at the Cameron, Missouri Police Department. Because they were working through the night and knew they would need some help in the morning running down leads and what really led us to her was her computer where they had corresponded back and forth and back through the IP address to, to track them down. 
FBI agents beat the Missouri cops to Kansas and set up about a mile away from Lisa Montgomery's home in Melbourne. Neither officer had the authority to make an arrest across state lines, and the FBI wasn't ready to move. I've traveled all over the country and interviewed people, and I, we can certainly do that. It's the, the problem comes into when you're taking somebody in custody. Now, we didn't have the authority to do that, but we had the FBI there. We explained what was going on, what information we'd had, and uh, they were wanting to wait and get a search warrant uh, for the place, but we had concerns about whether the baby's still alive, you know, due to being basically butchered out of the mother. Well, we were gonna go probably with or without consent. So we said, we're gonna, we're gonna go do knock talk right now. Step the door, knock on it, say, hey, we're so-and-so, and we'd like to visit with you, and here's what's going on, what we're looking for, and, and you know, just talk to them. Over time, and as long as I've been doing this, you learn to talk your way into houses. Sometimes, sometimes you're successful. Sometimes you're not, but most of the time you, you can talk your way in. I was briefed on who we were going to see the entire way. Of course, we didn't know who was there. Part of the trick is to remain calm. Uh, my guise was that we're here looking for witnesses and maybe you can help us. That was my way to get into the house, not knowing if we get inside, if she is going to take the baby hostage, is her husband involved, is there somebody else in the house involved? So you have to be prepared that things are going to go south very quickly and you have to have that mindset that you can switch gears. As the FBI agents watched, Fritz and Strong pulled into the driveway. Who answered the door? Well, nobody did. Uh, when we pulled in, her husband came out and met us out in the driveway. It's a rural area. As you, a car pulls in the driveway, you look and see what's going on, you know, and so he came out and met us. The husband was Kevin Montgomery. He seemed concerned. Uh, I remember talking to Don. I said, keep your eyes on, on the husband and watch our backs. Uh, just ask if he could help us. He didn't know who we were or whatever. He realized, obviously, we were driving an unmarked police car because the spotlight on and everything like that. But uh, we explained we were from Northwest Missouri uh, Major Case Squad and that we're going around checking on all newborns because of the what had occurred. I said, you might have seen the Amber Alert, you know, which... When we did get to go in the residence, it was streaming across the bottom of the TV screen. Uh, so we told him we'd like to talk to him and said, sure, come on in. When I walked through the door, our Amber Alert was displaying on the TV right in front of me. And I turned to my right and she's sitting on the sofa to my immediate right holding a baby. Prosecutors predicted Montgomery's attorneys would use an insanity defense. In some of the most horrific um, crimes in our country, uh, whether it's mass murder or torturous murder, it's inherent in those um, cases that who in their right mind would do commit those type of offenses. So mental health is automatically a significant factor. But just because someone is wicked or depraved, that doesn't equate to insanity, legal insanity. And they began planning a strategy to defeat it. Within a few days of the kidnapping, the prosecution team already had on its uh, priority as uh, defeating mental defenses. 
and our analysis is what would we say if we had a client that did something like this? What are mental defenses that could possibly fit? They came up with one, a controversial condition known as pseudosiesis. Pseudosiesis came immediately to the top. The foundation is three factors, that you truly believe you're pregnant, that you have a sincere um, craving, intense desire to be pregnant, and that you have the physical uh, signs of pregnancy. And we were able to um, show that all three of those were lacking. Instead, the prosecutors alleged Montgomery was simply a liar and a narcissist. It was what you would call a fictional pregnancy or a malingering pregnancy. Prosecutors said a mental illness defense requires showing Montgomery didn't know right from wrong at the time of the crime. I think the premeditation is significant. And the premeditation in this case was so much on what her finger strokes were on her computer on the months leading up to the kidnapping resulting in death by her um, targeting and by, by her specifically preying on Bobby Joe and how that intensified and that we could see through her finger strokes, her keystrokes, what her thoughts were, what her plans were, how she was educating herself as to not only Bobby Joe, but as to unassisted home births and C-sections. What was important to Lisa Montgomery is that she produce a body of a baby. Investigators discovered that Montgomery claimed to have been pregnant, and not just in the months leading up to the attack on Bobby Joe. She claimed repeatedly to have been pregnant for years. She claimed at different times to have been pregnant with twins. She also claimed to have miscarried and donated the fetus to science. Family members were trying to warn Kevin that Lisa couldn't be pregnant because she had a tubal ligation. That was a problem because in custody disputes with her ex-husband, Montgomery claimed on numerous occasions that she expected to give birth in December. Her ex-husband, meanwhile, was sending threatening emails pointing out that she wouldn't be able to produce a child in time for the next court appearance. She had run out of excuses why she never had a baby. The prosecution argued that the attack itself didn't serve as proof of mental illness. It just revealed Montgomery's true nature. The depth of the narcissism and the wickedness of the thinking of women that... Um, kidnap babies by C-section is no concern of the effect of their acts, no concern of what happens to the victim, the victim's family. It is just such an intense narcissism that does not rise to the level of insanity. Ketchmark expressed dismay that those paying attention to the Trump executions seemed fixated mostly on the people facing execution. There are more victims than just Victoria, Joe, and Bobby Joe. The secondary, the tertiary, the law enforcement that, um, you know, continue to have nightmares. The prosecution and, and um, the praying, the crying, the nightmares that the whole team went through. It, it's the defense, the defense team. I mean, how uh, hard and, and uh, troubling is that for the Montgomery team, and the judge, and bless their heart, the uh, jury, jury panel, and the foreman who has to uh, place a signature on the death penalty verdict. Evidence shown at trial was extremely graphic. 
Prosecutors pointed out autopsy photos showing blood under Stennett's feet and the possible implications. We know that after she had been strangled and she gained consciousness, she then was bleeding so profusely by um, the blood pooling around her feet that her feet um, were flat on the floor and um, so she was struggling to save herself and her daughter as she died. Randy Strong testified at trial. He said Montgomery showed no remorse. And so I stepped into the room and, and we all kind of filed in. She was very cool about it. She was uh, smiling, holding a baby like you would expect to see a new mother holding a baby. So I just you know, started up a conversation with her and told her why I was there and caught her in her first lie. Which was, uh, what, what was her first lie? Um, we walked in and I, I introduced us, told her why we were there, and uh, I said, maybe you've heard of that. And, and uh, I, I mentioned Bobby Joe's name and, and I told her that we knew that she knew her. And, and she, she said, Bobby Joe who? And her husband steps in and he goes, you know, we talked about that this morning. There was the first lie, you know. She's sitting there holding the baby. She told us that she had had the baby at a women's clinic and a birthing clinic in Topeka, Kansas, of course, and that she'd had Kevin drive up and bring her back home, had her daughter come with Kevin and take the car back home. So now we know we had two vehicles involved. I asked for, do you have some something to show us from your discharge from the women's clinic? And she said, yeah, there's some medical papers out in the truck, and she sent her husband out there to get them. And I asked Don to go with him. And they returned momentarily with nothing, and he says, I can't find the papers. And she says, well, I don't know what, what I've done with them. So I want to get her separated from the baby. We can't see her hands. And uh, I asked her, I said, would you come out and let me interview you and see what you know and, and let one of these uh, other people hold the baby? And she readily did that. Randy went at it like, oh, I love babies. Can I hold the baby type deal? You know, and, and she said, well, yeah, sure, you know. She was almost like she was trying to be, I'm proud of my baby. Yeah, you can look at my baby. And then we found out later she'd been in town and showing the baby off also. And, and uh, she got up and tried to uh, imitate a woman that had just given birth in her walk and uh, come out with me. And we went outside and sat in the car. Um, I was a little unnerved by the baby. I knew it was a month premature. And uh, the baby didn't cry. Uh, there was no sound coming from the baby, but I could see its color was good and it was breathing. Um, so. Were you surprised that she was still alive, the baby? Yes, very much so. And I was not expecting Lisa to get a warrant anytime soon, so that was really a surprise. Jan Vogelsong is a licensed clinical social worker. In 2013, Montgomery's new attorneys asked her to conduct what's called a biopsychosocial assessment, and if she would travel with them and meet Montgomery to learn more about her background. Reviewing thousands of pages of documents on the case, mostly family history documents, and then meeting the defendant and ultimately, I ended up traveling to three or four different states to interview both her family members and non-family members. She says Montgomery acted like she'd been held hostage. 
the word captivity kept coming to me over and over and over. Lisa reminded me of someone who had been held captive her entire childhood, adolescence, and even after she was married. Um, she reminded me of veterans that I had worked with who had post-traumatic stress disorder, who had been in the various wars, whether it was Vietnam, Desert Storm, Iraq. She had the qualities of someone suffering from complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I spoke with the attorneys after meeting her and I shared this with them and it's certainly not the norm. This was such an extreme life history that it had a bizarreness to it. This is not the kind of calls that a Department of Social Services gets every day about child abuse or neglect or physical abuse or sexual abuse. This was extreme and it was bizarre. The types of abuse are hard to hear. The most extreme assaults came from her stepfather, Jack Kleiner, who built a special room for her on their rundown trailer in Oklahoma. She had turned 14, which is when he began assaulting her. He kept her locked in that room and he cut a window out of a closet so that he could surveil her 24-7. You know, her mother would bring in the plumber and some of the workmen out that way. Her father would bring in his friends. And of course, he was raping her repeatedly. She has no control over when she can leave that room. They let her out to go to school. But by then, they have got her so well programmed. She's not telling anybody. Her mother finally walked in on Jack raping her and held a gun to Lisa's head and accused Lisa of lying. I mean, this kid, this is torture stuff. This is not, oh my God, a neighbor reported me for slapping my child too hard. This, this is a whole different ball game. This is crazy stuff. Vogelsong says her suspicions were borne out by further documentation of contemporaneous records, evidence of abuse that long predated the attack on Stinnett. Specialists also uncovered mental health diagnoses and evidence of a pattern of mental illness throughout Montgomery's extended family. I came up with 40 family members who had suffered from mental illness, uh, many of them from trauma. And we know that without intervention, these patterns of behavior get passed down. One behavior in particular seemed to overlap somehow with Montgomery's crime. People taking each other's children away, either abducting them, uh, the language kidnapping was used in the records, or custodial battles in the courtroom where children were being removed from their parents. Among the examples, Lisa's father, John Patterson, was kidnapped by his father when he was five years old, and his father removed him and disappeared into some wooded area. He kept him there for a year. Vogelsong also learned that Lisa believed her mother, Judy, had taken a baby from her that she didn't remember. It turns out Judy did take two of Lisa's children to California without permission. Her jury did not hear the presentation that we would have presented in full had we been allowed. But that jury never, ever heard 
any of the information that we were able to collect and put together. Vogelsong was also shocked that Montgomery was deemed competent to stand trial. I cannot imagine how any mental health professional could sit with Lisa for more than 30 minutes to an hour and not say to themselves, there is something terribly, terribly wrong here. I interviewed her two or three times and I was able to see her dissociate. I was able to listen to her distorted perceptions of reality. So it's hard to imagine that anyone would have looked at this crime and looked at this defendant and looked at all this information and found her competent. At the time, Montgomery was the only person on death row for this type of crime. She wanted to be involved with her children. She wanted to do things for them. And when she was okay, when she was cycling out of a a psychotic episode, she was very loving and very sweet. And she tried to be a good wife and, you know, do all of these normal things. She couldn't maintain it. She could not keep it up. She was too sick. And yet the quality of her mothering came up at sentencing. A prosecutor told the jury that she didn't cook or clean and her children wore dirty clothes. This is something that we usually don't see in men's cases, right? Sandra Babcock is a professor of law focusing on women and the death penalty at Cornell University. She also consulted on Montgomery's case. So in the closing argument at the penalty phase in you know, their, their determination to persuade the jury that Leisha should be sentenced to death, they told the jury that she kept a filthy home, that she didn't cook and that she didn't clean. These are the kinds of things that would never be raised in the capital trial of a man. And we see this in, in case after case after case. Babcock also says trauma is present in every case of women on death row. And the other factor that's a constant is extremely poor legal representation. This is something that has been documented around the world that women tend to have uh, lower, less access to high quality legal representation. Um, Some of that is financial because women tend to be more indigent than men. It also, I believe, has to do with the gender bias in the legal profession. Most defense attorneys are male. A lot of defense attorneys, as was the case in Lisa Montgomery's case, they don't have the skills to build rapport with witnesses and their clients to elicit the full story of a a woman's experience as a victim of sexual abuse or domestic abuse. That gets back to the mitigation specialist, too. With Montgomery's trial attorney being less interested in mitigation, it ended up being him trying to get Lisa to open up. But she tended to shut down around men, and Ducart never got the full story. So the defense attorney knew that she had been raped. They did not know that she had been trafficked. Uh, They didn't know that she'd been gang raped or urinated on. They just, you know, but they knew that one fact. So in his closing argument, the defense attorney read a poem about rape, this male defense attorney. And it just struck me when I was reading it how inadequate that was and how little that gave the jury to understand, you know, how this woman had, you know, barely survived her childhood torture um, and that her, her mental health had been so irreparably damaged by it. Um, and then he reads a poem 
we just need to see lawyers who are properly trained to defend women like Lisa. And right now, what I'm seeing in the cases of women on death row around the country is that that is not happening. Fred Ducard insists on meeting for Kansas City barbecue before talking to journalists. And he's unfazed by the mountain of court filings claiming ineffective counsel in Lisa Montgomery's case, particularly his confidence in his ability to get Lisa to open up. There were a lot of issues that Lisa always had with developing relationships with anyone, and particularly with men. It, it took a while to develop that relationship, but we did get to a place where we had a great relationship. The thing that we did with Lisa is my wife, who has since died, she helped me a lot because she had a counseling background, had her master's in that. Lisa's experience was always with men as looking at her as a sex object. And so the brainstorm that we had was that uh, if my wife was sitting next to me in my dealings with Lisa, Lisa would not see me as a threat to her. Ducard said that while getting Montgomery to let her guard down was a challenge, she tended to be pleasant once she opened up. I don't know that I've ever met met a person sweeter than Lisa Montgomery. And and a lot of people just look at me cross-eyed. It is absolutely the case. She so much wanted to be, wanted to please people. She so much wanted to be nice. Uh, She so much uh, was trying to cooperate through all of the difficulties that she had. So the biggest thing was uh, finally developing a layer of a level of trust so that Lisa would talk to me about things other than uh, crocheting and uh, things like that. Oh, I, I have things that Lisa made for me and gave to me. They're they're priceless in terms of the kind of person that she was toward me. Um, Like I said, I have never met a sweeter person. Mm -hmm. Ducart believes that Montgomery isn't just nice. He doesn't think she murdered Bobby Joe Stinnett. He thinks it was her brother, Tommy. As for the information uncovered by Vogelsong and other mitigation experts... There was not a damn thing new that they came up with. Every piece of information that they had came out of our file. Ducart has one habit that's truly unusual in the defense attorney universe. He pushes back hard against claims of ineffective assistance of counsel. Essentially what you're doing is you're arguing that the person was ineffective. And to the extent I was, I'd be happy to admit it. The trouble was the arguments they were making, for instance, what you were saying, that they had come up with all this new information. They didn't come up with a damn thing that was new. Everything they came up with was in my file. The reason it's unorthodox is because under U.S. law, there are so few avenues for post-conviction relief. One of the only claims a defendant can make after their trial is that their attorney was ineffective and they deserve a new trial. That's why, for the most part, trial attorneys don't push back for their former client's well-being. A lot of the accusations were incredibly personal in Lisa's case and and false. The simple fact is that post-conviction remedy cases 
are successful to the extent that the that the the uh, trial lawyer or appellate lawyer is screwed up. The difference in approach that I have had with the successful cases that I've had in getting convictions set aside is I have actually found errors that the lawyer has made and I took them to the lawyer and said, I found this. Explain it to me. Uh, back in 2000, I found in a uh, state, uh, state of Missouri death penalty case that a critical instruction had not been given in the trial. And I went back to the lawyer and I just said, what happened? He said, Fred, I screwed up. And it was because of the failure to give that instruction that that guy, death penalty got set aside and he's now doing a life sentence. Ducart says there's never going to be a clear indicator of why Montgomery got death. The plain fact of the matter is we lost. We did not get the result that we wanted to have for Lisa. And so... Anybody should second-guess that result. It's whether you're going to lie about what, what I did and what I didn't do, or you're going to tell the truth about what I did or what I didn't do. Unfortunately, the lawyers played fast and loose with the truth. It, it was not that Lisa was innocent. It was that her brother Tommy was involved. We took time, effort, and patience to not try to prime Lisa with anything, but Lisa was constantly telling us that there was somebody else with her, but she didn't want to tell who it was. So we just patiently waited until she told us that it was Tommy. Two things. One is that the experts Montgomery's new team hired say that the feeling that someone was with her is classic dissociation. They think Ducart took her too seriously and pressured her to name someone, so she named her brother. The other thing is that Tommy has a pretty airtight alibi. He was with his parole officer that day. Tommy was then given a quote-unquote alibi by his probation officer who he met with. Trouble is that the records of that probation officer, Tommy was to have met the probation officer right after he went out of court. Court was scheduled the week before. And everybody said that Tommy went to his probation officer right after he went out of court. But interestingly enough, the records of the probation officer showed the date a week later. And that was the day of the killing. So do you think that's just like a mistake or? No. <laughs> I, I, think that the, I think the record was falsified. Anybody who understood the physical requirements to have strangled Bobby Joe and to have cut that baby out and then re-strangle Bobby Joe to death and knew what Lisa's physical acuities are and are not, she couldn't have done it. But Ducart's co-counsels didn't think a jury would buy this, especially the alibi he views as suspicious. So they decided to drop it. We would not pursue that. And uh, I was outvoted on that. Unfortunately for Montgomery, the prosecution got a hold of recordings of Montgomery saying her brother was there. Montgomery's later legal team thinks the jury remembered that when they weighed life and death. 
What kind of person would blame their brother for a murder they committed? So the defense settled on a different claim, which has also been criticized. Everything that Lisa did and everything that you, you are uh, describing either describes premeditation on a killing or describes pseudosiesis. Pseudosiesis. The patient believes they're pregnant. And frankly, that's the reason why pseudosiesis as a defense fit hand to glove to, uh, to what happened here. It was the one explanation. Frankly, the deliberate killing doesn't make any sense without pseudosiesis. Why, why pretend that you're pregnant? Well, why did she lie about being pregnant? Where was the secondary benefit for that? I mean, according to Rose Testmark, it's because she gained all these benefits. If you ask Kelly Henry, it was because she didn't want to have sex with her husband. And that certainly was part of it, too. But, the, uh, but the, 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 to simply say that would be to simply say that Lisa never wanted to have sex. And that, that's just honestly not true. Neither one of them are looking at Lisa as a nuanced person. Uh, that was where pseudosiesis came in. And, and really, quite frankly, took into account all of the different aspects of things. So, uh, yes, I certainly believe to this day that that is the correct explanation. The trouble is that any mental illness as an excuse for a homicide is a terribly difficult thing to prove to a jury. junk science that they were raising at the time, is that something that sounds even remotely possible in your opinion? I mean, Because of the nature of the crime, uh, it, I, I imagine it's understandable, right, that people were trying to grapple with understanding what could have explained it, right? My evaluation did not yield that conclusion. Catherine Porterfield is a clinical psychologist at the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture in New York City. She doesn't think Lisa had pseudosiesis people who've been through severe trauma in the form of torture uh, or, you know, war trauma, refugee trauma, et cetera. And, uh, and that work has brought me in touch with folks who've been, you know, imprisoned, obviously, and through systematic torture in those regards. Montgomery's attorneys contacted her in 2015 and asked her to evaluate Lisa to establish how past trauma might affect her mental health today. I evaluated her in 2016 reviewing a lot of records, talking to folks, but then, of course, most of all, meeting with her. I met with her for about, uh, I think it's about 16, 17 hours. My evaluation yielded that this was a person with severe mental health, severe mental illness, and an extraordinary amount of childhood trauma that led to a cascade of adaptations that she had to make as a child to deal with her environment, which became then the roots of psychosis, lack of touch with reality, lack of touch with her body, a distorted sense of what her body was used for and good for, and a distorted sense of children. You know, Lisa's case is unique, not just because, you know, she would be the first woman executed by the federal government since 1953, but also because she's the only person um, 
to have committed this crime to be sitting on death row state or federal. And there's a reason for that because you know this particular sort of crime is one that would be committed by people with serious mental illness. And Lisa is one of the most um, mentally ill, traumatized clients I've ever dealt with. It's October 2020. Attorney Kelly Henry says she's taken off guard by the execution date. She thought, for one thing, that the government wouldn't have attempted to execute her at the federal facility in Indiana since she wasn't being held there. The choice to set a date for Lisa Montgomery hit us completely by surprise because, you know, we expected them to be developing a protocol for her execution in Carswell. And as far as we knew, that protocol had not been developed. Uh, It never occurred to us that they would even consider taking her to Terre Haute, a men's prison, for a woman who's been the victim of gang rape. That is mind-boggling and abusive in and of itself. That fall, Henry and the rest of Montgomery's legal team were working around the clock to finish a massive clemency application. Our clemency petition is due November the 15th, which is a Sunday. And, you know, we'll need every minute until November 15th. And that will be um, the document that really lays out the things that we find most compelling and most important about why President Trump should grant Lisa clemency. Henry says the petition will go into detail about how Montgomery's background and mental illnesses ought to justify commuting her sentence to life. There are many tragedies in this case, but one of the greatest overall tragedies is that if Lisa had received the mental health treatment that she needed and the medication that she needed, none of this would happen. Lisa on medication, I mean, she's still, you know, not completely in touch with reality, but her condition is more benign or out of touch with reality, you know, it's just, it manifests itself in completely different ways. And it's horrible to look at and we want to look away, but we can't because if we want to move forward as a society and protect these children who are being subjected to this sex trafficking, we have to know what the end result is, you know, and to just turn away, put your blinders on and and call her evil, you know, that doesn't answer the question. That isn't who Lisa is. Lisa is not evil. And if she had received the treatment that she needed, this would have never happened. It was very much a big shock to all of us. I'm not saying, like some people are like, oh, you knew it was going to come to this at some point. But no, no, her her last pill was just denied in August. So this is very sudden. Montgomery's family expected several more years before it would even be possible for an execution date to be set, especially compared to some of the lengths of time that others sentenced to death have been on death row. Lisa's daughter, Kayla Bowman, says it took years before the experts at Carswell were able to figure out the right medications and dosages to treat her mental health problems. And what I can tell you is that she's not the same person that she was 16 years ago, and that they they have you know worked with her very rigorously, I guess is a good word there, um, to make sure that her medication is correct. And it has been changed several times. Um, and then she's had some really good therapists that have worked with her and it's, it's made a lot of difference. And she has, she's, she's just not the same person she used to be. It's very unfortunate and very heartbreaking that, that she is finally at a place where I feel like she is okay. And then they're going to execute her. It, it doesn't make sense in my mind. Bowman says that despite being behind bars, her mother has tried to maintain a healthy relationship with her children and grandchildren. 
she has been a great grandma to my children, even if it's through, you know, like writing them letters. And if you were to look in their bedrooms, you'd see all this really cool stuff she's made for them. You know, it's, it's hard, you know, but she's still my mom. So I will just say that I have um, a 10 year old daughter who my mother sends um, craft books to sometimes. And she has made her um, a very elaborate um, plastic canvas dollhouse, like for her Barbies. But my, my 10 year old, I always say if my mom had not gone to prison would be my mom's best friend because she's very into Laura Ingalls Wilder and like crafting and all of that type of stuff. Uh, my 10 year old has always made it the point to write to her grandma and anything that my mom sends gets displayed very proudly. Oh, my grandma made this, you know, she just, she just really loves her, you know, and it, she's, I think she's met her one time um, because it is very hard to take small children and get locked in a tiny room um, to be able to visit her because we, we, we're not allowed contact visits or anything. So she's, she's met her the one time. And if you were to see this picture of my daughter with her grandma, she was over the moon to meet her. Bowman says she isn't sure how to explain that their grandmother is going to die in December, barring any last minute reprieve. You're not supposed to know when somebody's going to pass away. You're not supposed to know. That's not our decision, and we shouldn't we shouldn't be the ones making that that choice. And if you're if you're ready, can I have you give me your first and your last name for me, and yeah. spell it so we can get it accurate. Okay, so it's Diane Mattingly. That's D I A N E. The next month, my colleague Adam Pensker caught up with Montgomery's sister Diane Mattingly. She confirmed not only witnessing some of the abuse. And knowing what she was going through, because I had gone through it before I was taken out of the home. When you say going through it, um, uh, we had heard from a defense attorney who said there was a uh, Lisa had gone through just a tremendous amount of sexual and physical abuse as a child. Just horrific stuff. Um, Did you experience the same thing? Yeah, I was raped. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Mattingly testified at Montgomery's trial, but she says the trial attorneys barely prepared her and other witnesses, and she broke down on the stand. First time I went on the stand, that was such a traumatic experience for me. The lawyer met me in a lobby at a hotel, and that's the first time that I met him. Now, A year or so before his investigators came and I gave them the whole story. So they wrote the whole story down. So they knew what all had happened to me when I was in uh, Judy's home. They knew it. So when it came to the day that I was going to testify the night before the, he came and he met me and he just, he, he didn't go over anything that we were going to talk about. So I was just assuming that he was going to ask all the questions that needed to be asked. And then I asked, I said, I have not seen Lisa in 30 years. Is there any way that I can see her before I go? And they said, it's too late. You, you can't see her. So the first time that I see Lisa in over 30 years is me going up on a stand. And I had never done this before. So I was so nervous. So he would ask me questions, but he never once asked the question about the sexual abuse, about her um, 
putting me out of the house naked because she was angry, didn't ask me about how she would just use whatever she had in her hand to beat us. She, he didn't ask about the multiple men that were in the home. Didn't ask any of those questions. And this is the first time I've ever done anything like this. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I could just blurt it out. I, I thought all I was allowed to do was answer the questions that he was giving me. Was it, was it difficult to see Lisa like that? <sighs> when I got done, I just, I lost it. Because this is a little girl that I loved so much and I protected when I was in that home. And I couldn't protect her after I was taken out. I couldn't take care of her anymore. Mattingly says that when state authorities took her out of Montgomery's mother's home, she thought they were both being relocated. I was gone, and but I couldn't do it. The day that they took me, I threw up the whole way there. When I get upset, it goes straight to my stomach and I get so sick. I threw up the whole way there because I'm like, I thought they were taking all of us. Why, why is she still there? Why is she still in that home? I'm not there to protect her anymore. Mattingly said she was asking President Trump to protect her sister now. I am praying that President Trump will get our message to stop this cycle of abuse against her to have someone step up and finally be on her side and say, we're going to save her life. We're going to commute this to life instead of the death penalty. It's just perpetuating the abuse that has been thrown at her her whole life. I, I just want him to know this, what Lisa has gone through and to know that nobody's been there for her, to know that she has been broken. She's been, she's been broken completely. She is the most broken of all broken people that I've ever seen. You know, what you're talking about is a, a lifetime of such extraordinary trauma and just and and horror being enacted on this person's this child's body on her psyche on her sense of self so, you know there's a reason we fight desperately to end child abuse to end child sexual abuse to end child sex trafficking and the reason is it is absolutely devastating to the people the child who grows up in that world and they will have catastrophic consequences sometimes it's, and this is not to say, by the way, that every person who gets abused, including sexual abuse, goes on to commit crimes. Obviously, that is not true. However, it is true that in some cases where there's something, where there is such severe, pervasive, again, I'm going to use that word pervasive, meaning across the lifespan of this child, uh, you know, physical and sexual abuse, there's going to be a terrible, terrible cost to that. And so, you know, the crime uh, to me is a tragic outcome of an actual an absolutely tragic life if a child has to endure too much abuse i mean not that there's ever an okay amount but if a child has to endure just ongoing horrifying abuse to their body their brain has to wire itself to handle that to adapt to it and those adaptations are part of how you understand then the problems that come 
in severe, severe child abuse cases. And those problems are in the nature of what this case involves. Dissociation, which is a disconnect from reality, inability to perceive other people and reality accurately, uh, you know, disconnection from one's sense of self, uh, and then severe disturbance in terms of um, engaging in the world. And so those, those consequences, we really understand now are, um, you know, body-based and brain-based adaptations that a child has to make if the world is too horrifying for them. And I believe that was the case with Ms. Montgomery. Shortly after Kelly Henry and her co-counsel visited Montgomery at the Medical Center in Texas, the two came down with COVID-19. Two lawyers for the only woman on federal death row are incapacitated with COVID-19. They had recently visited their client. Sandra Babcock from the Cornell Center stepped in and argued that Henry and the other attorney were incapacitated and unable to complete a clemency application on time. The Constitution requires and demands that a prisoner have that minimal protection and support in making this final request to the government. Babcock told the judge that Montgomery couldn't finalize the petition on her own. President Trump's campaign will argue issues stemming from the presidential election in a federal court in Pennsylvania today. The Trump campaign is... A judge eventually ruled in Montgomery's favor pausing her December execution, but only extending the clemency application deadline for a few weeks. Yeah, we had no sense that she was in the government sites at all. I mean, she'd not been out of court very long. There were many, many other people who'd been out of court much, much longer. Um, did not expect that at all. Amy Harwell was also on Montgomery's legal team. In Terre Haute, she worked on last-minute litigation related to Montgomery's mental health. She says Montgomery clearly began to check out mentally as the execution date neared. No, um, we actually drove up a couple of days before. There was still a lot of litigation, and they they wouldn't tell us when Lisa would arrive in Terre Haute, and and we understood that in terms of a security whatever that they're not going to tell the lawyers when they're transporting their client. But you know, we we did want to be able to see her and monitor her. We filed quite a bit of litigation related to Lisa's competency to be executed. And I don't want to give the wrong impression when I talk about visiting with her that day. I mean, Lisa was always dissociated, um, you know, in a normal visit. Often she could kind of break through. We would do grounding techniques of, you know, Lisa, come here. Let's, let's be in the room together. You're safe. Everything's fine. Um, the morning of the execution, nothing I did could work. Um, and, and she was just not there. She could talk to me. I don't mean to imply that, you know, she was um, catatonic. I, I don't want to misrepresent things, but she was incredibly dissociated and um, very, very far from the conversation. It was hard to tell what she could follow, what she could take in, what she couldn't. And so it's my belief she knew we were there. And, and she interacted with us, um, but it was also very clear that she was so frightened and so far away that it's, it's hard to know how much of what was going on she understood. There's so much of one's impressions in such a circumstance that's about yourself, not about your client, because she, was, she, was, she wasn't able to tell us a lot about what she was thinking or feeling or there wasn't, and, and I knew from the conversations leading up to that that caused us to file the Ford litigation that her her grasp on reality had become more and more tenuous over over that last week. 
increasingly so up to the point that you know we felt like she doesn't really know what's going on um so it's it's a hard thing to talk about because i have feelings of like what i wanted for her i wanted her to know her lawyers cared about her and were there do i know whether she had much sense of that no i really don't i want to believe that she knew we were there and that we were telling her we loved her and that we you know we're going to be with her till the end but i don't know I mean, as we were talking about things, she definitely would tell us that she loved us and, you know, was glad to have phone calls and glad to have our, you know, telling her that we'd talk to her kids or this or that. Um, it's just increasingly she told stories of events that were completely disconnected from reality. And that was, you know, sort of the basis of our pleadings in the Ford litigation was how she became just so disconnected. After the final stays were lifted, Members of the U.S. Prison Bureau transported Harwell and others on Lisa's team to the death house. Did you have uh, guards that referred to the event? So the people in the van with us kept calling it the event and asking if we'd attended any of the other events. It was one of the most surreal things I've ever endured was just they were like, they were friendly which I mean, okay, kind, but could you please shut up? And they kept, they kept just, you know, so have you been, you know, have you been to an event? Where are we? The actual execution unfolded for the most part like the others that preceded it. Although the prison staff inexplicably barred her spiritual advisor from the room. They asked her if she had any last words and she said no. I think she had a mask on and then they like kind of moved it to here. I guess my sense that she said no comes from my knowledge of how out of it she was earlier in the day, and I can't imagine that the person that I sat with would have been able at all to come up with anything that was anything. Harwell says she stood and watched as the prison officials began pushing the drugs into Montgomery's body. And soon after, she noticed something odd. There was a point in the middle where I thought, Oh, there it is. In recent years, Harwell was involved in litigation challenging lethal injection as an execution method. She knew one sign that the drugs weren't working exactly as the government claimed, a bodily reaction that suggests an inability to breathe. I had, um, you know, as part of our lethal injection training, had had people uh, describe to me what it looks like when someone obstructs. And they'd always said it was a rolling motion in the abdomen, which in the abstract seems like I mean, it's hard to imagine what that looks like. Um, having now seen it, it's still hard to describe it any better than that. But like the minute I saw it, I, I, I heard the woman who trained me about it because it was so clearly that is what just happened. As the Trump administration pushed forward with its plans to execute using a single drug called pentobarbital, NPR collected hundreds of autopsies from state executions. They suggest lethal injection might not be as peaceful or painless as we've been led to believe. And one telltale sign is this rolling motion, which could indicate someone is consciously attempting to breathe but isn't able to due to obstructions in the lungs. And I uh, was trying to, you know, do my job as her counsel in case the information was, you know, relevant for someone else. And I think I, you know, quickly jotted the exact time of that rolling motion. On the next episode of Rush to Kill, the latest research about lethal injection. 
and why prisoners are increasingly seeking alternative execution methods. Rush to Kill is a production of WFIU Public Radio in Indiana. This episode was produced by Sarah Whitmire, Brock Hammond, and me, George Hale, with help from Martha Abraham and Kaylee Manier. Editing by Perry Metz. Kathy Knapp is our researcher. More information about the project can be found at wfiu.org slash rush to kill.